This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 35. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible, it begins on page 237 and the Bible's in your rows and it is printed in your bulletin. 1 Samuel chapter 15. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel Saul came to Carmel, and beguiled he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said, came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the, of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, 
and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. My name is Zach, and I'm on staff here at the church. We uh, haven't gotten a chance to meet one another. I'm relatively new, and I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, So today's passage is one that's pretty uh, difficult to to face. Uh, And in fact, there's a little bit of context leading up to it that can help us jump into it. And it's very uh, similar to the story of Robin Hood, actually. Uh, Now, Robin Hood's a classic. We all know it. It's been written, rewritten shot, reshot, and for films. Uh, I am partial to the Kevin Costner version and was really sad that the Russell Crowe version was subpar. But at the end of the day, the Disney version is still a classic, and we all kind of get the basic story from it, right? That King Richard has gone away, and he's entrusted uh, Nottingham and all of England to Prince John, right? Um, To take care of them, uh, to defend them, but we all know what happens, right? Prince John makes himself the functional king. He levies on some pretty heavy taxes. All the people are burdened by his rule. And in the middle of kind of John's tyranny, we see Robin Hood swoop in, right? He's kind of the people's champ. You know, he comes in, he steals from the rich and gives to the poor. He defends them and he holds things together long enough for King Richard to eventually return. And that's very similar to what we see kind of leading up to chapter 15, The previous chapters show Saul's kind of slow demise as he's usurping Samuel's role as prophet and as the mouthpiece of God. And he's ultimately kind of demonstrating that he won't wait for God's direction and how to defend his people, but is instead moving in and using his own judgment. And likewise, we see Jonathan, who's Saul's son, kind of swooping in as Robin Hood, again, kind of the people's champ, holding things together. God using him to deliver the people from their enemies. After this, however, we move to chapter 15, and things are just getting worse. We see Saul's disobedience persisting, and as readers, we start to worry, right? We've seen 13 and 14 and see that, hey, things aren't looking so hot. And then we get to 15, and we are 
un we're unmistakably reminded that oftentimes even the best of our leaders can fool themselves into thinking that they're serving God and serving his people when in fact they're there just serving themselves. So while looking at chapter 15 today, we can ask a big question that will kind of help guide our time. And that question is, what does God do when the king fails? When those who are in authority fail to live up to their calling, how does God respond? So I'll give you the SparkNotes version, uh, the three points that we'll be looking at today, and then we'll jump right in. Um, big picture, again, we're going to be asking that question, what does God do when the king fails? And our three points will be responses to that question. So the first response is that God confronts. The second response is that God grieves. And finally, we'll see that God intercedes. So, what does God do when the king fails? Well, the context for chapter 15 is that God has called Saul through Samuel to destroy all the Amalekites, all their best stuff, the, the fatted calves, like the biggest cows you can imagine, the most elegant things that they have, like all their gold, all their art. He's calling them, destroy this. And it's interesting to know that God is calling him to destroy all these things, right? And it's interesting because it kind of falls out of line of what we typically see nations doing, right? One nation will conquer another and use all of its resources to make itself bigger and badder than their other guys, right? And yet here, we see God calling to do the exact opposite. And this command is ultimately meant to demonstrate two things. First, that the Amalekite conquest isn't just about gaining materials, but rather it's about God defending his people and bringing justice. And then second that God is sufficient. He's more important than the stuff a nation could use to make themselves more powerful and stronger. And so in this command, what we're specifically seeing is that God has a desire to not only defend his people, but also to provide for them. And that's what he's calling Saul to demonstrate. Yet Saul enters in and kind of tweaks God's command a little bit. And in this little tweak, we actually see um, a, a major implication come about. So let's look down at verse 9 together and we can see that. Verse 9 shows us that Saul leads the army of God and destroys everything but Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, and the very best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and of the lambs and all that was good, and he would not utterly destroy them. And having kind of caught wind of this, Samuel comes to talk to Saul about it. Um, he comes and he walks down, and we see their interaction in verses 13 through 15. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, Well, they, the, the people, have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction." From this interaction, we can take note of two primary things. The first is what I'll refer to as kind of Saul's cognitive dissonance, or maybe his self-deception. He greets Samuel as if he's obeyed the Lord to a T. You know, he kind of goes like, behold, I performed the commandment of the Lord. And that's very similar to kind of what I would do as a kid when my parents would ask me to clean my room. I would go and I'd shovel everything that I owned underneath my bed. And then when my parents would come and say, hey, like, how's it going? I would say, behold, I've obeyed the commandments of my parents. You know, I really didn't say that, but I did try and hide stuff under my bed. 
Uh, and the reason I did that was because I wanted to move on. I wanted to deceive my parents into thinking that I had done everything when I really hadn't. And that's what Saul is similarly doing. He's trying to give the impression that he obeyed when he really didn't. And Saul demonstrates something that we all do. We all, uh, when we really truly care about something, we'll lie to ourselves and others to preserve it, right? It's kind of this idea of self-deception. And that demonstrates his desire in this particular case to preserve his standing in the way that people thought about him among the people. For me, I was trying to defend my uh, time to play video games. My comfort was most important to me, and so I shoveled things underneath my bed. And this self, idea of self-deception is something that we see you know, in media, we see it in our daily lives. Like When I was writing this, I was thinking of Walter Wyatt in the series Breaking Bad. He's the main character who, uh, time and time, as he, his uh, character kind of morally decays in the series, he keeps saying that he's doing what he's doing for his family because he loves them. But in fact, it's illustrated time and time again that he really loves himself. He's really doing what he's doing for his own ego and to expand his own sense of self. And we see this too when we struggle with addiction, right? That we want to lie to ourselves that we actually have a problem so that we can kind of continue to enjoy our comfort of choice. And so the second thing that comes out here, and this is something that we see, is Samuel coming to challenge this in Saul's heart. He's proverbially kind of looking underneath the bed and saying, hey, I see your disobedience. And he's exposing Saul's self-deception. And we need that too. And so Samuel's attendance to Saul's disobedience actually demonstrates something really significant about the heart of God for us. We've, we've known that God defends his people from external threats, right? Like the Amalekites. But this shows us that he also is dead set on defending his people from internal threats. He loves them enough to protect them from internal threats. And we all know impact that internal threats can have, right, on an organization. Uh, think of Bernie Madoff, for example, who lied about financial investments for a really long time, did his famous Ponzi scheme. And not only was that something that led to his own company's decay, but also it destroyed hundreds, if not thousands, of others and ultimately impacted the economy. Internal threats can destroy a lot of things. Likewise, maybe a structural example of this is to think about bridges. You know, I, I don't know a ton about bridges. One of the things I do know is that the greatest threat to a bridge to kind of successfully carry people from one side to the other isn't necessarily the cars or the people on top of it, but it's the foundational issues. It's the nuts and bolts kind of holding things together. It's the internal parts that create security and help the people of God carry apart their task, their mission to be a blessing to the nation. So what does God, what do we see God uh, move towards Saul and do in holding him accountable? What does that show us about him today? It shows us that simply we have a God who really cares and concerns about the way that his people, and especially his leaders, conduct themselves. How we behave actually has an impact, and it demonstrates something about who God is to the body of believers as well as the watching world. And this passage ultimately reminds us that God loves his people enough to move towards and confront those who mislead his people. It is his love and his affection for his people and his mission to be a blessing to the nations that brings about this confrontation to Saul from Samuel. And so at this point, we can actually partially answer our big question, what does God do when the king fails? 
Well, we see that God confronts. But there's more, right? There's more to it. God does other things too, so let's keep looking at the passage. What does God do when the king fails? So after this confrontation, Saul kind of delivers this twofold excuse, we'll call it, right? He says, first of all, I was like, I didn't do it. The people did it. The people grabbed all of the, of the best of the Amalekites. And then second, he kind of offers what I'll call like a holy excuse, right? He says, and we did it so that we could offer sacrifices to the Lord. We didn't do it for ourselves. We are going to do it for the Lord. Um, and so Samuel kind of responds to this, and we see his response most clearly in verse 22, trying to, you know, basically address Saul's excuses. Verse 22 says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. So we see Samuel basically kind of just swooping away Saul's excuse of, oh, it was the people. He's like, no, we, we both know who's responsible here. We both know who's in charge. Who has the authority to make these decisions? It's you, Saul. And instead, he zeroes in kind of the heart of the issue, the heart of what Saul's belief is. And Saul's belief is that he can pick and choose what to obey as long as he kind of buys off God with a juicy steak dinner from the Amalekites. This doesn't just merely demonstrate disobedience, though, does it? It demonstrates something bigger, something deeper going on in Saul, that he has a deeper commitment to his own reputation over the reputation of God. And we see that expounded for us in verse 24. When Saul ultimately acknowledges a sin, he says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the command of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. So here we see very clearly that the thing that was guiding Saul's commitment to offer sacrifices wasn't to God, it was actually to defend his own reputation. That's what ultimately motivated him as a leader. And somebody kind of points out, one of the commentators points this out, where it's like we see Saul calculate at the same time basically how to buy off the people and how to buy off God all with the best of the Amalekites. Because in a sense what he's wanting to do is kind of put the people and God in his pocket for his own desires. And so we see God move again, right? We see him move um, by removing Saul from the kingship. And we see that in verse 26. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. We also see in 28. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And some of us might be surprised to see God remove Saul, especially after Saul had just kind of named his sin, right? For many of us, uh, we can recall, what is it that uh, God does to David when David confesses his sin? In that case, God restores David to the role of king. So we can be a little confused. Is, Is God one who forgives? Is he one who accepts our repentance? The key to understanding this is to understand the key of repentance. That when the Lord confronts your sin, the proper response to God's loving kindness is to repent and to return and reorient your heart to him as your heart's deepest commitment. And in this case, the unfortunate thing that we see is that Saul is unwilling to do this. We see that Saul's status and reputation is more important to him than his commitment to the Lord. In verse 30 kind of expounds us even more when Saul asks Samuel to return with him before the people. And this is the second time where he's really laying all the cards out saying, return with me for this reason. He says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Eventually, Samuel relents, but this verse shows us something, right? It shows us that the deep heart commitment of Saul is still 
to remain and favorable in the people's eyes. He doesn't want the people to see that there's actually a rift between him and God. He wants Samuel to demonstrate something externally that isn't true internally. So how does God respond to this disconnect, right? This disconnect between the internal motivations and the external actions of this king. Well, we see that, yes, he does ultimately remove Saul from the kingship, but we could miss something here. Let's look at verses 11 and verse 35, which show us that God is ultimately grieved. That our Bibles here use the word regret, but the emphasis isn't that God is regretting as if he had made a mistake, but rather that he's emotionally moved when we fail. He's emotionally moved by Saul's failure. He's grieving deeply. So more than simply caring about lining up our internal motivations with our external actions, these verse show that when the king fails, God grieves. That he's moved deeply by our failures and heart commitments that lead us to live a life that's contrary from him, that's further from him and not an intimate relationship with him. And Jesus demonstrates this in the New Testament, right? Think about Matthew 23 when he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood? But you would not come. You were not willing. We see in this the pain of a parent almost, right? The pain of wanting to gather one's children to take care of them, um, but yet the refusal because they have a deeper commitment rather than that presence. And for the parents in the room, that probably rings true more for you than for the rest of us, right? You know you've seen several times your kids have chosen to move away in disobedience in a way that's ultimately going to hurt them when the whole time you just want to gather them up, help them, and to help them succeed. And so that's what we see here, that in God's grief, we have the heart of a parent, who wants his kids to succeed, who loves his children, who wants them to come to him. And that's what Jesus shows us. And so what about this can we apply to our lives right now? Well, I think for many of us, there's a part of us that inherently kind of thinks that God is actually really judgmental, that thinks that he is ready to reject us. And for a lot of us, this passage even today is just kind of more evidence that he's willing to do that, that he's going to treat us the same way that he treated Saul. However, that's really the last thing that I think this this, uh, passage is emphasizing. The true thing that this is emphasizing is that God has a heart for his children, that he is grieved when our affections for beauty, for power, for comfort, money, notoriety, cause us to live a life that is contrary to him and contrary to life of intimacy with him. And we need to be reminded by this passage and also places like the parable of the prodigal sons, right? where the father welcomes the youngest son who's just gone and blown it all, and he's excited for him to come. He runs to him. That's emotionally motivated stuff. We also need to be reminded the same way, too, how the father grieved, how he grieved when the eldest son didn't want to come into the party because he was more concerned with his own performance than having time with the father and the son who had returned. And so what does God do when the king fails? Well, our first two points, first one shows us that God confronts. And the second shows us that God grieves. We need to ask more questions, right? What does God do when the king fails? So this time for our final point, let's look to the seeming contradiction that's in verse 29. So we've already talked about how regret in this chapter is mostly pointing out the idea of grief, 
that God is emotionally moved towards us when we fail, when we sin. Yet, verse 29 seems to say that God doesn't grieve, which seems contrary to what we saw in verse 11 and verse 35. See, verse 29 explains that the glory of Israel, or God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that should have regret. This is really confusing, right? Because it seems to say that God regrets, then that God doesn't regret. And so which is it, right? Well, basically what's going on here is the same word is being used in two different ways. And we do this all the time. We do this with the word sorry, for instance, which I actually think fits pretty well in our text today. We use sorry empathetically, and we also use it apologetically, right? When somebody has a really hard day and you're listening to them and they're telling you about how their tire blew it out on the way from work, they went for a walk and stepped in dog poop, you say, man, I'm really sorry that happened. We're, we're emotionally moved to the way that their day was just kind of made worse, right? In the same way, we also use it apologetically, when we apologize for doing something wrong, right? Like when we, uh, you know, you use the last of the milk and tell nobody at house. Say, ah, I'm sorry, I ruined your breakfast. That was on me. I was selfish in that. I apologize. And so that's what we see, right? We see verses 29 basically saying, God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't have to say he's sorry because he doesn't make mistakes. And then in verses 11 and 35, we actually see that God is moved, that he is grieved, that he is emotionally connected to his people. And together, they emphasize the same thing, that God is emotionally moved by us and that he doesn't make mistakes. There are two things that are true about who God is. One commentator summarizes this well when he says, here is a God who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. If we cannot comprehend this, we can perhaps apprehend it at least enough to adore. So seeing this, um, Eugene Peterson actually points out, puts God kind of in contrast to who Saul is. Because Saul is here, he's calculating kind of and trimming down his obedience to really serve his own needs. Whereas in contrast, we see God caring actually demonstrating a a sensitivity to his people. And even God's eventual removal of the kingdom from Saul is a demonstration of his sensitivity to his people by by making sure that they're not misled by Saul. So what does God do when the king fails? Well, we see here that he intercedes with both feeling and with firmness to defend his people. And this picture of God's heart Um, is kind of a demonstration of his coming incarnation, right? That both his feeling and his firmness come to take place in the person of Jesus. And we need to remember that, right? We need to remember that Jesus is both the guy who flips tables uh, when his father's name is is, is, uh, misused and, and distorted for economic gain. That he's also the God who weeps with his friends when people die. He's the one who confronts hard hearted Pharisees. And he's also the one who spends time with prostitutes and tax collectors. He's the one who brings Zacchaeus in. He's the one who gives hard truths to his followers. And he's also the one who welcomes little children into his midst. In other words, Jesus kind of gives us the HD view of God's heart. That he is able to do it all. That he is able to be both firm and also feeling. We're tempted, you know, in in our brokenness and also just due to some of the things that we've experienced in life, to think it can only be one or the other. That God is only firm. Or that God we'll just kind of let everything slide. But in reality, we see that God has the depth of heart to know exactly what we need and to see our hearts truly as it is. And he also has the ocean of wisdom necessary to know how to care for us. 
And this is the father who relates to you and I today, who is not indiscriminate, that he's wise and able to accurately intercede and to address our heart's deepest needs. And he's able to do this in such a way that is both emotionally involved and also yet firm. And God will not respond to us indiscriminately, right? So if we see this today and we're going, oh no, he's going to always treat me like he treated Saul when Saul disobeyed. Yet, that's missing the point here. The real point is that God has a heart who is able to see our hearts. That he is able to accurately know what each of us needs as we struggle to obey him. So that he can most lovingly care for us, defend his people, and to make himself beautiful to the world. So this morning, while we do see a particular story of God confronting Saul, we see more broadly again the heart of God and can be comforted in knowing that he is a God who is able to accurately address our deepest needs and the deepest needs of his people. So in closing, this passage kind of tells us one big thing, that when our leaders fail, God won't. He's going to come instead. He's going to intercede. He's going to be the true king. Think about back to chapters 13 and 14, how I was talking about Jonathan or Saul's son kind of being the functional Robin Hood, right? He's the guy who kind of swooped in, took care of things, was the people's champ. It's all great and good, but at the end of the day, what is everybody still waiting for? We're still waiting for the true king to return. It shows us that we need more than just a man to lead us. We actually need a God-man to kind of step into the gap. A God-man who is able to confront us, to grieve our sin, and is ultimately able to intercede. The one who's able to come knowing fully all of our blunders and rebellion and is able to go to the cross to bear it all to cleanse us, because he knows exactly what we need. And that's the point, that the true king is coming in full knowledge of who we are. And so what does God do when the king fails? God confronts, God grieves, and God intercedes as the true king. So let us all go to him, knowing that he is just and faithful to forgive those who come to him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you and have looked at this passage, we pray that you would remind us, Lord, deeply uh, that you are a God who both has firmness and feeling. Would you help us to see um, the complexity of who you are and the way that you're able to deal with our incomplexity, that you're good, that you're wise, that you're not indiscriminate. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to see that in the face of your son, Jesus. Now be with us now as we worship you And as we bring ourselves again, saying, Lord, restore us, for we can rest assured and know that you are faithful to move towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.